coming up on Studios America, I promised you answers on the Delta variant, and tonight you will finally get them. The incumbent host of Jeopardy steps down over past offensive comments. Typical cancel culture nonsense, we'll get into that. And the horrific details of the situation on the ground in Kabul continue to emerge. It's looking worse and worse uh, every hour. So let's be sure to stay up to speed as we do the evacuation debacle. Stu does America. Debacle doesn't really cut it, does it, as a word. There's certain times I, I've had really struggled this whole week trying to come up with the appropriate word to describe how terribly all of this has gone. I keep coming to catastrophic. I'm flabbergasted. I went to flabbergasted like five times this week. There's just no words that seem to really uh, convey how terrible all of this has gone. Joe Biden came out and decided to make another speech today, showing he's been awake multiple days this week, which is nice. Uh, congratulations to Joe Biden. Done a great job getting out of bed almost every day this week, we think. We don't know that for sure, but we think so. Here's uh, Joe Biden. He's talking about uh, 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 the situation in Kabul. We know all of the surrounding um, uh, incidents that are going on. One of the things that you noted in, in, you may have noted in the speech today is that he's trying to basically take credit for the French evacuating their citizens, basically saying that we're, we're helping them, which I'm sure we are at some level, but that was one of the pieces of criticism he took this week and also has been taking criticism on the fact that uh, several times it seems like they're not even willing to commit uh, to getting all Americans out of this situation, uh, unless, of course, it's just a Taliban, the generosity of the Taliban comes through. Here is Biden talking about Americans coming home. Well, let me be clear. Any American who wants to come home, we will get you home. There he is. But make no mistake, this evacuation mission is dangerous. It involves risks to our armed forces, and it's being conducted under difficult circumstances. I cannot promise what the final outcome will be or what it will be that it will be without risk of loss. Hmm. But as commander in chief, I can assure you that I will mobilize every resource necessary. And as an American, I offer my gratitude to the brave men and women of the U.S. Armed Forces who are carrying out this mission. You know how you could have guaranteed their safety? Maybe if you, I don't know, kept the military and kept the bases until we evacuated the people. Then you could have guaranteed their safety. You decided not to guarantee their safety when you left everybody there with no protection and barely any military presence and no access to an airport when you allowed all of this to go on in the first place. You could have had this done long ago and should have. Obviously, we, if... If this is a possibility, then the people should have been out of there beforehand. And if you wanted to make sure that the Taliban didn't run over the entire country, which, by the way, they have been doing since May. This is not it feels like it just started, but it didn't just start. The Taliban started a really strong offensive on the day that we were supposed to be out of there based on the Trump agreement, which is, by the way, if you happen to watch this program, you know that I've criticized before. I didn't like that agreement. 
this whole situation is much worse than, than that agreement, but I didn't like that agreement either. The Taliban decided to go in and start uh, taking over the country on May 1st because they never agreed to this extension and they never agreed to allowing us to have six or seven hundred troops guarding the embassy either. This is always going to be the outcome here because they never agreed. And even if they did agree, are we in freaking sane? Do we not realize who we're talking about here? It's like, I don't know. You know, Jeffrey Epstein promised when she took my 12 year old to the island that nothing would happen. Who are we talking about here? We're talking about the Taliban. You, they're not trustworthy negotiating partners, guys. And you can't trust them on any of this stuff. And they should have known that and certainly should have known it when we were still in there uh, and all of our people were there and they were taking over half the country in May. May have been an indication that they really didn't care what the agreement said. As if they ever did. Um, He does talk about uh, terrorists, ISIS, the Taliban. Went into that a little bit. Uh, I don't think he wants to talk too much about this because he's in this weird place. Uh, he's in this place where he has to act as if the Taliban can be trusted at some level because we are trusting them right now to allow our people to pass freely. An amazing part of this is somehow we're supposed to now take everything you knew about the Taliban and throw it out the window. I'm not going to be able to do that, are you? I guess Joe's going to try. Watch. And we, we, we made clear to the Taliban that any attack any attack on our forces or disruption of our operations at the airport will be met with swift and forceful response. I'm sure they're taking that seriously. We're also keeping a close watch on any potential terrorist threat at or around the airport, including from the ISIS affiliates in Afghanistan who were released from prison when the prisons were emptied. And because they are, by the way, and make everybody understand that the, the ISIS in Afghanistan are this have been the sworn enemy of the Taliban. Oh, stop. I've said all along, we're going to retain a laser focus on our counterterrorism mission, working in close coordination with our allies and our partners. You can parse these groups as as you may. Uh, but for example, the leadership of the Taliban and the leadership of Al Qaeda have taken blood oaths with each other. <laughs> This is, you want to call them different things, you can call them different things. Yes, there are some differences, it's clear, but it, they're unimportant. It's a difference, it's, it really is a distinction without a, without a notable difference to us, at least, at this point, particularly between Taliban and Al-Qaeda. They're basically the same organization. They're just different branches of the same organization. Uh, it, it, there's this fascinating thing going on where they're acting as if we have control of the situation and that the Taliban is saying, you know what, we're going to allow free passage of people from, you know, their hotel in Kabul. They're going to they want to get to the airport. That's totally fine. And what's amazing about that is what they're saying is the argument that is implied there by Biden, by Biden, is that when these people get through the, the Taliban on the way to the airport, Taliban's letting them go. They're honoring their agreement. They're getting to the airport, and that's when they can't get in. They're getting stopped at the airport, not by Taliban. This is Biden's telling, by the way. Not by Taliban, but because we're just overwhelmed and can't handle it. Whose fault is this? This fault, I don't even have to ask the question. It's Joe Biden's fault. It's Taliban Joe's fault. That's whose fault it is. We got to keep remembering this because they're going to try to spread it around, and there is blame to spread around for other parts of this conflict. But that doesn't matter right now. What matters right now is the situation on the ground. 
Joe Biden came in knowing the deadline was May 1st, knowing that the Taliban was going to attack on May 1st, knowing they had to get the people out of there and did do, didn't do anything. He didn't prepare for the worst case scenario. What the hell kind of commander in chief doesn't prepare for the worst case scenario? It's incredible. He, though, wants you to know he's going to take responsibility for whatever comes down the road as long as he can blame it on somebody else. I talk to our commanders on the ground there every single day, as I just did a few hours, an hour or so ago. And I made it clear to them that we'll get them whatever they need to do the job. They're performing to the highest standard under extraordinarily difficult and dynamic circumstances. I believe that. Our NATO allies are strongly standing with us. Their troops keeping sentry alongside ours in Kabul, as is the case whenever I deploy our troops into harm's way, I take that responsibility seriously. Do you? I carry that burden every day. Do you? Just as I did when I was vice president, my son was deployed to Iraq for a year. Hmm. There'll be plenty of time to criticize and second guess when this operation is over. Yeah. But now, now, I'm focused on getting this job done. Yeah, well, you got to be. You created the problem. So, yes, you have to be focused on getting the job done now. And do I believe the military will get this done? I do. I do. I mean, and I do think we'll get these people out. I, I've been warning all week and worried about all week some escalation because we're teetering on the edge here. You know, we've, we've, we've talked about it in the terms of if you go back to uh, September um, 2008, when the financial system was on the edge and we didn't know it. We knew there was stuff going on, but we find out later that we were like an hour away from the entire financial crisis collapsing. We had a big freeze here in Texas recently where our electricity system and gas and all of these things wound up in, in, in cluster land, uh, which included, by the way, a broken pipe in my house that flooded my entire house, which is which is really awesome. I, I really appreciated that. But we learned later that we were minutes, maybe seconds away from the entire system in Texas melting down, the entire grid being down for maybe months. Now, I feel like we're in that position right now. And, and my guess is, as the, the history of these events really gets uh, uncovered, and the congressional hearings begin and the real pieces of journalism come out, we're going to realize how close we were to utter catastrophe. And we may not be able to hold it off. If anybody can hold off utter catastrophe, it's our military being allowed to do what they're supposed to be doing, not stopping them from going to get the people in Kabul, not stopping them from rescuing people that, that are our allies, if that can, if our military can be utilized in a way that they want to be utilized, we're going to be fine here, I think. But we are on the freaking edge right now. And you may have laughed at one point in my last uh, couple of rants here when I said real pieces of journalism. Do they exist? It's an interesting question, but I think we have a, a surprising answer right now, which is this particular scandal is so bad the media can't cover for it. And that's the negative conservative way of looking at it. Let me look at it the other way. The media is doing their job on this one, largely. They're not perfect. 
There's still been a lot of uh, random pundits and annoying people who have made all sorts of excuses. You can find that stuff if you want to. But unlike other situations, you can also find good journalism if you want to. That's shocking. That's a stunning development to me, at least. I'm not stunned that the Taliban is taking over this country because of the way we've treated the last 10 years. We've basically been telling them for 10 years we don't want to fight anymore. We're tired of this. We don't really want to do anything anymore. How about this? We'll negotiate our way out and you guys can kind of take over and just let us leave. Please, please let us get our people to the airport, please. With that attitude, of course, the Taliban's going to take over the country. That I'm not surprised about. I am surprised that journalists have really done some uh, really good reporting on this. Let me give you one example before we go to the break. And I want to come back on the other side with some more. This is ABC. Um, Ian Panel is one of their guys. He's been a guy who has been on the ground throughout this situation and has been covering it. And he's on a podcast. He's talking about what's going on. And I want to give you just a picture of somebody who's actually there on the ground in Afghanistan and their view of what Joe Biden is telling the American people. Again, this stuff does come from conservative sources. It does not normally come from mainstream sources. Listen to this. Hey, your reporting early yesterday from the Kabul airport was frankly terrifying. We didn't talk to you in person because you were being chased out of the airport in a armored car. And you even had it much easier than the average Afghan, right? So, so President Biden has basically said now, hey, it was a really chaotic seen four or five days ago, he took control, he said, to make it more orderly. From what you've been seeing, does that hold water? It's just not true. I mean, what, what, what has happened, what is fair to say, is that they took control of the military side of the airport. They secured the perimeter. They managed to move all those people we saw on the runway, those tragic scenes of people clinging on to C-17s. But they didn't just go home. Of course they didn't. I mean, you know, there, there are thousands and thousands of people down there. It is a very scary, wild and dangerous place. I mean, that's the narrative from Joe Biden. Hey, everything's fine. We've took, taken control. And you heard Ian Panel say, it's just not true. I don't know how you can put it any more clearly. He's got video. He's got audio. But it's just not true. That is the summary of basically everything Joe Biden has said since he took office here in 2021 uh, in January. Everything he said about Afghanistan, you can summarize that way. It's just not true. Trying to buy or sell a home in these times can be challenging, uh, really doing anything in America right now can be challenging. Uh, you got viruses, you've got buildings burning down, you've got terrorist threats. Is anything easy? Uh, inflation. The housing market is tough to get into right now. If you're trying to buy a home for the first time, it's really difficult. We have someone here who uh, who's uh, in the middle of buying their first home. And it does not seem like an easy process. I'm glad she has someone who she can trust on her side. Realestateagentsitrust.com is the place to go to find that person. If you can go to realestateagentsitrust.com, if you're buying a home, they can help you through that process. If you're selling, it's a big deal because especially in this market, one of the things I see people do all the time is they try to get the house perfect, perfect for the market. You know, they paint all the rooms, they make all these repairs. And at the end of the day, a lot of the times, especially in a market like this, you don't need to do that stuff. It's not even, it's just creating hassles in your life. Talk to a good real estate agent who knows what they're doing. The, the way to find that person is realestateagentsitrust.com. Go there now, check it out, realestateagentsitrust.com.
Too much to do today. I didn't even schedule a guest today because we just have too much to do. Uh, we did some stuff with Joe Biden last break. Uh, this one, I want to go into some of the media coverage in particular of uh, that CNN has been doing. And there's I will say there's been some good stuff on CNN, which is shocking. Um, I want to talk specifically about Clarissa Ward. She's a reporter that is on the ground in Kabul. And if you're, I don't know, you're on conservative Twitter, you may have only seen one clip of her. And there's a clip that had circulated widely on conservative Twitter where she said basically like, well, in the Taliban, they're, they're chanting death to America on one hand, but they're being very nice on the other hand. And it was kind of like used as an example of typical CNN nonsense, right? What do you, it's like the person standing in front of the burning building saying, this is a mostly peaceful protest. I will say, when you look at in the context of that comment, what she seemed to really be saying was, they're acting nice, but they haven't really changed. And I think that's true about what's going on in, in Kabul. There there's some of the Taliban who are giving you the flowery language. Women are going to be able to serve in the government. Of course, we've changed. This isn't the Taliban of 20 years ago. If you've ever watched Mr. Show, you know the new KKK. Uh, it's not really that reformed. OK, it's just it's just the, it's just the truth. So let me give you some of the reporting that she's been giving from uh, from the ground here. And she's first of all, obviously, her name's Clarissa. Um, I don't know if you know this, even in the woke world of today, most Clarissas are women. So she's a woman in Afghanistan forced to report uh, so she doesn't get murdered in the streets in full Islamic garb. But I mean, uh, the bravery of just walking around these areas right now has got to be completely insane. She's trying to report for U.S. media. Uh, it's a it's a wild, wild thing. And to you know, it's really brave. It really is brave. Let me give you a couple of clips here. Tell me if this is the same story you're hearing from someone like Joe Biden. Watch. I've asked everyone I can here, what's going on? Why aren't the planes taking off? How long can these people lie on this on these rocks and these gravel? I, I don't even want to tell you what the bathrooms look like, Kate, because there's about three stools for 500 people. Jeez. Um, and obviously no cleaning or anything like that. There is water and there are MREs, but it's... Um, it's a desperate situation and it, it's a mess. She sat there for eight hours and no planes took off. Biden tried to kind of excuse that away, saying, well, we we uh, we had too many people were in the landing spot. So we just kind of kept them here. But, uh, you know, uh, again, an effort that is in full force getting these people out. There's plenty of people that want to leave. The people are actually at the airport sitting on the gravel, sitting on the tarmac, waiting for a plane. And at least eight hours goes by and nothing happens. Here's Clarissa Ward talking about uh, the, the, uh, the checkpoints. It's amazing. We did see a lot of people also getting turned back today. And you can imagine how crushing that is. You know, your paperwork isn't all in order or you didn't get the final approval or it was rejected because you couldn't get an HR letter in 24 hours from the people in, in Texas who you worked for in 2014. I mean, it's just a bureaucratic nightmare for these people who don't have any real recourse once they're turned away. Did you, did you hear that example? Uh, let's say you're helping uh, the U.S. military and you have a contract with them. You assist us in killing Taliban soldiers and stopping terrorists. And you are rightfully supposed to get out of the country. You're not maybe coming to America. There not many of these people are coming to America, by the way. They're going to other third-party countries, other military bases, getting them to safety so they don't get murdered tomorrow, right? That's all we're basically doing and promising at this point. 
and you go to the airport uh, to try to get in and they tell you you need to get the proper paperwork like a letter of referral from the company you worked with in 2014 that's located in Texas and you need it within 24 hours and you're in freaking Afghanistan. How does that even happen, right? And this is a source, these are the sorts of problems. Now, vetting is important, and it is an important part to make sure you're not letting people on. But like many of these military guys are in our military are willing to vouch for specific people there that still can't get out of the country. It's insanity. Um, this one is uh, talking about probably the most dramatic footage maybe you've seen a baby being passed ab above barbed wire to try to be passed to safety. Uh, this is, was it rumored initially? Apparently it really happened. We've seen video of at least one time uh, that it occurred. Uh, here's Clarissa Ward from CNN talking about that. I think what's sort of so striking about this is that the people who are right now loading their babies over razor wire hoping that an american soldier might catch it so that they could have a better future those people were allies of the u.s they worked with the u.s they risked their lives to act as translators and facilitators and drivers and cooks and at the end of it this is the thanks they get Incredible, incredible. And one more here um, talking about the real troubles that uh, soldiers are facing in this region. Watch. This is such a different mission to what most of these guys are used to. And I spoke to a British soldier who said, you know, I did two deployments in Helmand province, one of the most dangerous uh, Taliban uh, insurgency flashpoints uh, during the, the, the war. He said, the PTSD I will have from the last week is way more intense than those two deployments. Because he said, I've seen with my own eyes, babies being tossed, as we have already talked about, tossed over the fence, tossed over the razor wire. And I've watched people being trampled to death. And as he was saying it to me, Kate, he started bowling. It's not that often that you will find a soldier just start weeping in the middle of a conversation with you at 11 in the morning. But that's the level of pressure they're dealing with. That's the level of horror that they're witnessing. And I think for a lot of them, that's the level of guilt they're feeling. Is that what Joe Biden is telling you? We're sitting here in a country where we're trying to figure out whether it's safe to send our kids to school to learn. And that's what's going on there. And our military is over there undermanned and trying to negotiate some weird path into in between saving the people they know they need to save and want to save and the restrictions being put on them by Joe Biden, the president of the United States, Taliban Joe. That's the situation we're sitting in right now. It's completely unacceptable. Look at what they're going through and then think of the things that we're talking about right now here in this country. Are we should be allowed to go out to concerts? I think if the I think if our soldiers can go and do things like this, we should be allowed to assess our own risk and go to a concert if we want to. This is really disturbing. And, you know, there's a lot of people there. You have people who are U.S. personnel that need to be to get out of there. We have people who helped. I mean, people who literally fired, who who picked up the weapon 
of our fallen soldiers and fired it back at Taliban fighters in the middle of a battle who are now at risk of being murdered. They did all of those things for us. We promised them that we would help. And so far, we're not doing that. And we also have another group that doesn't get talked about all that much, which are Christians and other religious minorities in Afghanistan that are at the whim of the Taliban. We're not even talking about people who might even be in Kabul at this point. They may be in remote areas, but as soon as the Taliban finds them, they're going to kill them or force them to convert, which they will probably not do. We have obviously networks, and you know this, uh, the the Nazarene Fund has been working for a long time uh, in these regions. And, you know, it's not something that I'm involved with every day. You know, it's something that I know Glenn started, and we have people who do all this vetting and everything. These are experts who have been doing this for a long time. And we've pulled thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians uh, and other religious minorities out of these regions. Uh, it started really with ISIS, and, and you saw what they were doing to Christians. They were decapitating them. They were burning them alive. They were putting them in cages and drowning them. All that was going on. And we were able to pull tens of thousands of people out of these regions uh, and save them. And the same process is going on in Afghanistan right now. Two days ago, Glenn started talking about this on the radio, saying to pull 5,000 people out of Afghanistan right now, 5,000 people that have gone through a vetting process that aren't coming to the United States. We're not taking any of them. They're going to other regions of the world, but out of Afghanistan, which is the important thing. And it's going to cost something like $20 million. We talked to the radio audience who is just a fantastic audience and always steps up for this type of thing and whenever they can help and said, hey, can, can you give until it hurts on this one? The Nazarene Fund has now raised over $20 million. We were over $20 million before the end of the radio show. Something like, I don't know, 60 hours we were able to put together uh, that much. Uh, in, in, in funding for these missions. They're going now. They're getting the planes ready. They're going to be going over there. At least that's my understanding. I know they can't give you all the operational details, but we'll be updating this next week on the air, and we'll have more for you coming up. I want to do a couple of shows this week where we highlighted some of your big questions about the Delta variant, about the vaccines. Uh, you know, we've got a, we get a lot of good questions. A lot of people talk to me about this stuff. A lot of conservatives talk to me, I think, largely because usually they're people who kind of want to take the vaccine, but are worried because a lot of the voices they hear are more skeptical about it. Obviously, I've been in favor of them, and I think, you know, so far they've held up really well. Uh, but they are, I think a lot of people who, you know, I've, I've, I've talked to several people who either say, I don't want to tell anyone that I want to get the vaccine, or I've actually, I actually got the shot, but I don't tell any of my friends because uh, they're going to think, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I'm against the tribe. I don't know what, I don't know why this stuff breaks down this way. The bottom line is, we all know that a lot of conservatives have had this vaccine. Many people believe uh, really strongly in it. And like, you know, look, you look at the numbers, 90% of people over 65 have had the vaccine. I don't know if anyone notices this, but people over 65 tend to vote red. You know, there's a lot of people out there who've had it. And I want to make sure that there are at least some conservative voices who are, who are showing you that side of the story. You can look at it either way you want, and you should never make a decision on taking a shot 
based on what some idiot on television tells you. And that goes from everybody from this idiot to Dr. Fauci to whatever person is telling you microchips are in, this, uh, are in the shots. The person to ask about this is your doctor. You're going to be going in to get, you're going to go to get your physical. You're, you're eventually going to have some reason to be going to the doctor. When you're there, ask them. They're going to know your personal history. They're going to know better than me or anybody else. But I wanted to at least ask some of the more policy-based questions. Why are these things going on? Let's start here. Why are they recommending boosters right now? Uh, you heard this. They're saying that about after about eight months, maybe you should get a booster shot. And they're saying they recommend that, though the policy actually isn't in place yet. That's sort of a, a hurdle that will probably be cleared relatively soon. Um, the reason they're doing this is because largely because of a couple of studies in Israel. Uh, Israel, of course, started uh, getting shots before us. And some of their early data shows that vaccines are waning in Israel against Delta. Now, it's important to note that these vaccines were, of course, created for the original variant and maybe the British variant. And they did not show any waning against either of those. This seems to be so far solely related to the Delta variant. So it, you know, we talked about that a little bit earlier in the week, that it is kind of a big deal, the Delta variant. It does seem to spread a lot faster uh, and and hit these things a little bit harder. But I want to show you what this actually means. Here's one of the studies that they talked about here um, when it comes to the outcomes from the vaccine. This is after, I think, eight or nine months in Israel. And what you see here, if we go to the next slide, I'm going to highlight for you the outcomes that they're worried about. And what they're seeing is people that got the vaccine very early, uh, the symptomatic COVID-19 cases and the cases overall, we're only seeing a vaccine efficacy of about 40%. Now, it's important to understand what that means. Even if it were only 40% effective, it's better than 0% effective, right? This would still be one of the best weapons we have. It's better than any of the treatments that we currently have against uh, the virus. However, it's more important to look a little bit deeper. And even in the studies that they're citing to give you the booster shots, if you look at the Israeli data, let me highlight it there. You see it there, boxed in. They're still showing 90% protection against severe COVID and hospitalization. Now, that is the big news here. And yes, we have always talked about there would be breakthrough cases no matter what with the vaccine. These were always supposed to be about 90 or 95% effective. And I told you at the time, I doubt 95% effective holds up in the real world for any long period of time. But it was really encouraging. Uh, and we have seen that when you when you look at and I've done this over and over and over again with you. But if you look at the data, it's a hell of a lot better to be vaccinated than it is to be unvaccinated. All of the bad outcomes uh, tend to go to the unvaccinated people at, you know, I, I just went over the Boston data the other day or the Massachusetts data. It's about 30 times as likely to end up in the hospital if you're uh, if you're uh, if you're unvaccinated than if you're vaccinated. It might not mean a lot to you. You might want to take the risk anyway. That's on you. That's your life. You're a human being, an adult. I assume you can make choices for yourself, but that's about what you're looking at in most of these age brackets. Now, even in the Israeli data, when you break it down by age, it holds up in every single group. Again, this is severe uh, COVID. We're talking about um, cases per 100,000. Uh, give me the next highlight. I'm going to show you what we're looking at here. These boxes here show you in every age group what your chances are of having a severe case of COVID and um, if you're vaccinated or unvaccinated. And again, these are the studies that they're worrying them 
So this is the bad news. There are, there are studies out of England that look a lot better than this, but I'm giving you the bad data here to give you the idea. If you are 30 to 39, you see your chances uh, only about 0.2% uh, 0.2 people in 100,000. So basically nobody is having a severe case of COVID um, if you're vaccinated. About six people are if, uh, if you're unvaccinated, but those go up as we get older. And as we've known from the beginning, the older you are, the worse this hits you. So you're about 16 times as likely in your 40s to have a severe case. Um, you are about nine times as likely in your 50s, about, uh, about nine to 10 times in your 60s, about 10 times as likely in your 70s, about, uh, what, what is that, uh, five or six times in your 80s and on up to the 90s. And you see the rates are much more dangerous. You can say, yes, you're six or, you know, you're a ton, you're 30 times as likely to go to the hospital in your 30s. But even the chances of going to the hospital uh, in your 30s are pretty low. Now, vaccinations can help as well against cases and they can help against spreading it. So it is something to consider about in addition to your own personal um, uh, experience with the virus, whether you're going to be spreading it to someone else, particularly if you're around someone who's immunocompromised. If you're around someone who's really if you're around someone who's really old, you want to be more more careful. I have a friend who just had a baby. He was a preemie and was born like 26 weeks or something. I mean, really, really, really early and had to live in the hospital for months and months and months and months and just came home. Well, I'm not seeing him right now, even though uh, I had the vaccine. I don't know if he does or not, but he doesn't want to go around anybody for any reason because he's got a preemie at home who's really, really vulnerable to this type of stuff. And you should take extra precautions if you're in those situations. However, if you're a 40 year old person or 30 year old person or a 50 year old person who's in relatively good health, you can justify not doing this based on this information. I will say, though, this idea that the vaccines are failing is not even showing up in the data that they're basing these things on. Let me show you that. Last, can we go to that last one one more time? I want to talk about that right column we didn't get to yet, uh, if that's possible. Over on the right, you see uh, ver uh, efficacy versus severe disease. Again, this is why they're recommending boosters. This data. Here are the age groups. 100 percent, 100 percent, 100 percent. 96.8%, that's if you're in your 80s, and 92.4 efficacy. There is no weapon we have in this battle that does anything like this. So when they, when they come and they tell you, hey, well, you know, this is, they're still holding up, they really are. What they're saying here is they're predicting that it might fall apart later on. Let me show you the data from the United States. This is from um, New York. This is brand new data out just the other day. And it gives you lots and lots of numbers that are very hard to read, but I wanted to at least show them to you. Let me give you the highlights of what we're talking about here. Um, give me that next slide if we could. This is, the, this is the vaccine falling off. This is what they're telling you is the problem right now. If you see on May 3rd, they had 91.7% efficacy against cases, against cases. That has fallen now to about 80%. Now, is that a fall off? Yeah, 80% protection, still pretty strong. And we all know that we take a flu shot about once a year. So the idea that it's going to maybe it only la it falls off slightly after eight months is not something to panic about. And I think the government is overreacting on this. I'll give you the same thing um, when it comes to uh, 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 hospitalizations, which is even more impressive. If you see here from May 3rd, it was at 95.3 percent effective. July 19th, two and a half months later, we're now all the way into July. 
and we're still at 95.3% effective. There's been zero drop off whatsoever when it comes to hospitalizations. I think all this is important for you to know. You can do with it what you want. Again, talk to your freaking doctor. I'm not, I'm not your mom. You know, go talk to your doctor if you want to take it or not. Uh, I will say that, like, there's a real argument here that the government is jumping the gun on this data. Um, you know, they're thinking that maybe hospitalization effectiveness and death effectiveness will fall off in the future. And maybe it will. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think it's going to last forever. At some point, it's going to start uh, lowering in effectiveness. And maybe you will need to get a booster. I don't find that to be the end of the world. I'm not worried about it, but I understand why people, because of the mixed messaging and all the different things that come down the road, why you'd be concerned about that. Um, and there's two arguments to go with here. One argument is, look, we have plenty of supply. The side effects to these vaccines, despite what you may have heard, is very, are very, very uh, infrequent and very rare. So look, we have this supply. I mean, people aren't taking as much as we want them to take anyway. If they want to get a booster that make them a little bit more effective, why not? I understand that argument. On the other side, uh, they're really jumping the gun on the data here. They don't have the data that's really going uh, to, uh, to prove that they need to do these boosters. They're trying to get ahead of it. There's an argument to say, pretty smart to get ahead of it, right? Why wait until it happens? Let's get ahead of it. I can understand that. But I think you are taking people who are maybe borderline and skeptical already on the vaccines. And then they're saying, well, now you're telling me I need to get a booster. Uh, these things don't work. I've heard people say they're failing. They're not failing. I mean, this was never going to be eternal protection from ever getting sick. That's not what these things are. But they are the best weapon we have by a lot in this uh, particular uh, battle. Um, and it's interesting to see that they're not they're jumping the gun on the science. They're not following the science. They're leading it here. It's kind of the opposite of what they keep telling us to do. It's a little bit of a strange um, position. And I and and uh, I want to bring this uh, tweet up for this is from Jason Schwartz. Uh, it, it, he says this. It may be the right decision. Let's see the data. But if it were the Trump administration getting this far ahead of the FDA and CDC on something this significant, there would be outrage and appropriately so. Process matters no matter which party is in power. Back in a second. All right, do you like a good snack throughout the day, but you'd rather not pack on the pounds doing it? Well, Built Bar is here to save the day. They've got so many flavors. There's something for everyone. I know my house is always packed with Built Bars. My wife loves them, eats them all the time. Uh, really, every single day she eats them. I heard, by the way, this is just a rumor. I don't want to confirm this. This is not an official statement from Built Bar, but I've heard there's a pistachio one coming out. If you're in the, I, I've, I've always loved pistachio ice cream. If you're in the pistachio world, you like diving into that type of stuff, that could be very exciting for you as well. Check, uh, check out built.com for that. Uh, coconut, mint brownie, double chocolate, salted caramel, cookies and cream. They have nine flavors all the time. And then the occasional new flavor, like maybe this pistachio thing coming out. You can get a mixed box to try them all. Built has uh, everything you need. 18 grams of protein, 180 calories or less, so they're healthy. They taste delicious. Only four to five grams of sugar, four to five net carbs. You know the deal. Go to built.com. What are you waiting for? Built.com. Promo code is Stew15. You need to know that Stew15 because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Plus, you want to get the 15% off, don't you? Use Stew15 as the promo code at built.com for 15% off at built.com. 
So the new host of Jeopardy is now the old host of Jeopardy. He never hosted an actual episode. His name is Mike Richards, and he is now stepping down as the host of Jeopardy. Obviously, Alex Trebek uh, passed away. They went through this long process to try to figure out who's going to host next. Mike Richards uh, was the executive producer of the show, and that rubbed some people the wrong way. They, they Wait a minute, you're the executive producer of the show, you're just going to step into the hosting role? First of all, as an executive producer of a, the third most uh, listened to radio program in the country, I think that's a totally appropriate scenario. I don't know why that seems weird to anybody. Uh, but, you know, look, when you're an EP, sometimes you rub people the wrong way, you usually make some enemies around, along the way. That didn't happen to me, obviously, because, you know, I'm just super nice. But uh, apparently he wasn't all the time. He did do a podcast, which is really the source of his trouble. And it's another one of these cancel culture things. They went back. The Ringer, for some reason, did this. I don't know. I think The Ringer is a sports site. Uh, at least that was my understanding of it. But they went back to try to out a Jeopardy host for his old podcasts. And they dug through all of his podcasts and listed all the bad things he apparently said in them. Most of them were completely innocuous. It's supposed to be a funny podcast. A couple times he joked with his female co-host about uh, maybe, uh, you know, her appearance. Uh, apparently said that some people, women who are in one-piece bathing suits look frumpy. I mean, like, legitimately, this is the stuff. He at one point used a word, and it was like, it was a, they described it in the article as a slur. And they wouldn't even write the word in the article. So I had no idea what it was. I had to click around the internet a few times to try to figure out what it was. And it was the word uh, for little people, which is, is, to me, much more offensive than midget. Now, midget is apparently not the right thing to say anymore. Okay, whatever. You want to keep changing these words every 10 seconds. But it was, I think... Uh, much more acceptable, at least in 2013, when it was said, which is a big issue. Also, little people is so demeaning. It's so much worse than anything else you can call someone who is a little person. Little people? It's such a strange... I've never understood that one. Anyway, bottom line is, this was so offensive that he's now had to step down. They are saying he's going to remain on as executive producer, but come on. These scandals come like this. How many times have we seen this? You don't get the backup job. Once you give up the main job, they don't keep you in the backup job. They throw you there for a couple weeks until they get too much heat for that, and then they're going to throw him out. If this, honestly, if this thing lasts a week with him as the executive producer, I'll be surprised. Back in a second. Thanks for making it to the end of the show. You're one of the cool kids, and we appreciate you making it this long. StuDoesAmerica.com is the place to go to get all the links to merch and social and the shows, whatever you need. YouTube has every single show. Just search for the word Stu. I'll be the first channel there. Make sure you pop on and watch any of the shows. You can also comment in real time. Uh, the U.S. does not have the capabilities to rescue Americans. Then what the heck did we do in a Grenada? Instead of focusing on his white rage, he should be focusing on his resignation. Whenever I think of Grenada... I think of Jeffy, uh, because he fought, of course, in Grenada, Isle of Spice. Well, I mean, not he was he went to the Isle of Spice, Grenada, and he got in a fight at a bar. But he did fight in Grenada, and that's important to remember. Uh, this is a comment from uh, Review, uh, excuse me, on uh, on uh, Apple Podcasts. Anywhere you're listening to the show on podcasts. All of the episodes go up there. You can always get them there. Five stars is the appropriate number of stars. It's great. Whatever. Ha! One suit, two shirts. That's basically 
what I have. I really like this stupid show. Five freaking stars. Thank you so much for uh, for playing along with this nonsensical game that we do every single uh, every single week. We have a lot. I don't think I've ever had a week where we were more overwhelmed with content. I, I can't tell you how many guests I had to cancel, how many things we had to move around just to get everything in. There's so much going on right now. And to be honest, it's really, really frustrating. If you're as frustrated as I've been with this week, take some time this weekend, relax, chill, do something other than obsess about this because it's difficult to avoid.